Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast today. My name is Terry Fletcher. The CodeCast is brought to you today by Nivea Milk and Honey Lip Care, the ultimate in lip care, Nivea. Hello, everyone. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Um, We're going to talk about the top 10 coding questions that I've received in the last month since we are at the last uh, Tuesday of the month. So it's hashtag Terry Tuesday and top 10 Tuesday. So let's get started. Um, It's interesting because I've had some doozies this month. So thank you to all of my Coding Corner members. And for those of you that want to know how to join that, go to my website at terryfletcher.net and you can either choose the executive or the regular membership. And we've launched a new newsletter and we've got some great things planned. We have uh, for our executive membership as well as our regular membership. We've also got an Ask Me Anything uh, quarterly call that I get on and you can log in and, and basically get some FaceTime and ask some questions. So hopefully you'll take advantage of that. We've had a lot of new members in the last uh, few weeks. So welcome. Happy to have everybody. Okay, so let's talk about some of these questions. The first one, and I actually like this one, I did uh, actually talk about this on a podcast with Sean Weiss on our hashtag Terry Tuesday, the compliance guy. And it was talking about the rule for timely documentation of records. So how long does a provider have to document in the patient medical record? Well, we wish that Medicare was a little more accurate than what they put out there, but they allude to it within 48 hours and they actually really want you to do it at the time of the service. So here's what I found, and this is going to be important because you always need, you know, published guidance. So when it comes to, um, let's see, Novitas first. Novitas, which is the Medicare uh, contractor uh, for many states, they say, and I'll quote, all services should be documented in the patient's medical record at the time they were rendered. So they are very clear on that. Neridian says, as soon as practicable, try saying that three times fast, but they say, we recommend at the time services are rendered uh, and also within 24 to 48 hours due to litigation issues. So they're basically saying, you know, you're going to have some legal trouble if you don't do this within 48 hours. Also in 2018, I found an interesting FAQ sheet for the, for CMS, for Medicare, And it said, um, remember, accurate and timely completion of medical records is part of the provider's responsibility to the patient and Medicare. And that says, ask yourself, how can I remember seeing all my patients and what happened during a visit if more than 24 to 48 hours have passed? So that tells me that would be the legal question that a judge would ask you. So if you have a compliance program, which you should if you're taking Medicare payments in your office, then... And in your practice, at least a plan, at least a policy, I would say no longer than 48 hours or sooner than that. So, but you should have a practice-wide policy. Second question says, what codes can we use the split shared rule visit for? I thought this was kind of an interesting question because in my mind, it's typically the hospital inpatient observation codes or follow-up visits. But then, you know, sometimes you may ask, can they share a discharge management um, what about the OBS care codes where they're in and out the same day? Those still exist. Emergency department codes or prolonged care. What about critical care codes? Things like that. So um, what you can code would be hospital admission observation, 99221 to 223. 
uh, follow-up visits, 99231 to 99233. And again, those are inpatient observation follow-ups. Discharge management, the 99238 to 239. Uh, yes, those observation care when they're in and out the same day, again, in the facility, 99234 to 236. ER you can share as well, but there's some caveats there. So make sure if you're ER medicine, you're looking that up under the 99282 to 99285. Uh, prolonged care in the hospital, 99318, and then the various G codes they have added on for Medicare. Those are allowed as well, as long as you can document that substantive time. Hospital outpatient departments, somebody said, what about the office visit codes? Only if they're used in the outpatient facility. You cannot share an office visit in place of service 11. So make sure it has to be in an outpatient facility. And then critical care codes, yes, as long as it's outside the global period of a surgery, 99291 and 292, and you would have to use the FT modifier. So um, the question that came to me was about neonatal codes and for certain codes within the, the, the unit for uh, pediatric patients, and those are not on the list. So if you didn't hear it on this list that I just gave you, then you can't code for it. Number three says we've been getting denials for nuclear stress tests for patients who work uh, for the Par Department of Transportation and they're requiring them for employment. What can we do? Well, it's not to just call out that uh, employer, but also many employers like UPS, FedEx, all these em different employers, sometimes they do have uh, certain requirements for employment and one could be possibly a stress test. I don't know how they can justify a nuclear on a patient, but a treadmill, I could see that. Um, I know that UPS, for example, I was actually sitting in a waiting room just waiting for my daughter one day and I saw UPS come in because they, a uh, uh, employee, and they were at the front desk just checking their TB test. So for tuberculosis and they require those, but those smaller tests, those employers actually uh, pay for. So it's not a billable insurance situation. Same thing would be if you're trying to get paid uh, for a nuclear study, heaven forbid. But if you're trying to get paid for any kind of stress test where there isn't a, a medical necessity for it. So think about it. You know, stress tests, stress tests are most often used to find the cause of symptoms that may be from a heart problem. So it could be coronary artery disease or angina. They could have an arrhythmia. Um, they're also used for, you know, if a patient could possibly have a chance to have a heart attack, but based on what they're complaining of. So it's treatment decisions for a heart condition. It's not a screening for a patient who's asymptomatic. Now, is there you know, can you perform it? Well, you can, as long as the patient consents, the employer wants it, but then the employer has to pay. This is not a billable service. So you'll continue to get denials. And I was reading the, even the ENM encounter, patients asymptomatic, they have, they deny all these symptoms of anything, but the employer wants it. That's not going to fly. So keep that in mind if you're trying to, you know, report those services. Question four says, what are your thoughts on stent placement in the Fontaine conduit due to a complication as a result of the procedure? So here's where, even if you don't know what that is from a pediatric coronary procedure, what the question represented was if a procedure is done and then there's a complication during that procedure because the procedure actually caused the complication, is there a billable service there? So I had to do actually quite a bit of research on this one. And there is something called, okay, and, and it's 
some people think it's urban legend, but there's something called you, you break it, you buy it. I'm sure you've heard of that before. And what that is, it's a rule that states that a surgeon or physician cannot separately report and receive compensation for treating a complication during surgery if the complication occurs as a result of the surgery or procedure itself. So for example, let's say that your physician is a gastroenterologist and they are removing a polyp uh, during a colonoscopy, but they it causes bleeding because obviously taking something off the wall of an intestine can do that. So they inject some, maybe some epinephrine to control that bleeding during that procedure. Well, control of bleeding during the procedure is not separately reported because the hemorrhage is due to that snare, that polypectomy. Um, or due to that snare polypectomy, sorry. But this is where it's also in, and I found this, and it was interesting, in the NCCI edits as well. And it's chapter 1.C.13 and then goes on. So make sure it's also in chapter 5.C.5. It said, and this allows, quote, treatment of complications of primary surgical procedures is separately reported with some limitations. And they really added that. So they said, if the complication arises from the surgery, and the primary surgeon is able to deal with it at the time of the initial surgery, there's little room for to report the treatment of the complication. You may report only a treatment that requires a return trip to the operating room, but it would have to be well documented, and this may be further confirmed in Chapter 5, and it has to show a complication of the prior procedure. So there's some trickiness there, but if it's during the same procedure, they're saying that it's really incident to the procedure and not billable. Number five, our physician performed a medial meniscectomy in the left knee and a chondroplasty of the left lateral knee. We keep getting denied for the chondroplasty. Why is that? Okay, so it's really important as a coder that you get updated every year, not just updated on the codes, but the new language in the codes. And this was updated about six years ago. And the 29881 says includes chondroplasty in any compartment. So it used to be years ago. We were able to code for it if we were in a separate compartment. Now you can't. I'm even having trouble with this one one appeal I'm doing for a client, and it's driving me crazy, but we're taking it actually to uh, the C2Cs. We're actually going to elevate it to an administrative law judge because they're clearly not reading the appeal. But it's in a separate knee, so we did the chondroplasty in the right knee, and we did the um, and the medial mastectomy in the left knee, and they're they're not noticing it's a separate extremity, but in the same knee that those are bundled. So please don't bill for those. And that's not just a Medicare rule. If the language says that it's part of that uh, CPT code, that's everybody, every payer. Number six says, and this is an, again looking at your rules. Says we performed a lower extremity stenting, so code three seven two two six for occlusive disease, and then a stent in the left subclavian artery, which would be 37236, can we charge for the cath placement for the, sub, the subclavian artery uh, and the lower extremity? So the answer is you can charge for, for the subclavian artery, but not the lower extremity, because if you look in the directions for use or the narrative language before each of those two codes, in the 37226 for the lower extremity stenting, it says it includes catheter placement. In the 37236, it says you can also bill for catheter placement. 
So the RVUs have been adjusted for those inclusions or exclusions. So make sure you read because not every stent procedure for different anatomical sites has the same rules. So we always want to know what the rules are for that particular site. I think that's why I like cardiology and non-coronary cardiology. Uh, when we get into lower extremities and renals and you know, aorta and all that venous stuff is because there's rules that are different everywhere. And I pride myself on knowing the rules and I hope you do too. So make sure that you're reading the rules. Number seven says for an EM service, if the patient comes from the ER with a report of an x-ray taken at our, and our orthopedic surgeon goes over this report with the patient, does that fall under review of outside records or under the independent interpretation element in data points? Well, I mentioned this a little bit last week because it's been bugging me. Ever since the CPT errata came out at the end of February and it's caused a lot of controversy because CPT specifically says on page 15, and AMA has been clear, if you order a test, then you can't also code for the result of that test. But what if you didn't order it? Okay, so, and now they kind of change a couple things, but let's just say the patient came in from the ER and they just bought, uh, brought a re, uh, report with them, a paper report. And your doctor kind of goes over it with them, just gives them a review of what it is, and then they go on with everything else. Well, you're not in the room, so it depends how your physician documented that. Was it an independent interpretation above and beyond what they received in the ER? Were they only in the ER to see either a PA or an ER physician and they took an x-ray and said, here, bring it to your you know, orthopedic surgeon and now you're going over it with them and you're documenting that it's going to be part of the management of how you um, will assess that patient and the plan for future care. Once you get into that kind of discussion, so the management and the plan, and it's well documented, now you have an independent interpretation. And it does elevate your data point from really a category one to a category two or three, and now you're up in the moderate, possibly even high um, level of service. But I would really like to see a rule that is implemented from our previous medical decision-making components, where it says something like independent visualization of an image, tracing or specimen itself, and not simply just reviewing the report. Because we used to get two points for that. Also, many orthopedic practices, um, primary care practices that are attached to a hospital or have privileges at a hospital can usually pull up records from a hospital and they can also pull up usually the image. And so to me, that's best practices if you've actually got an image but with the question at hand, if the patient comes to the ER with a report and the documented note and the record that day reflects that it was an independent interpretation and it also reflects that it was part of that assessment and plan with the patient moving forward, it is an independent interpretation. Number eight says, in, patient is in the parking lot, but the provider's at home. Oh, good Lord. Do we use the modifier 95 or would this be considered a regular office visit? Okay, so when the provider is not in the office and when the patient is not in the office, either or, then you have a telehealth visit. And this would be a 95 modifier through the end of the PHE and now extended through 2024. Now, remember, the physician, if they're going to be at home past the public health emergency, they now have to make sure that on their credentialing form that that's considered a separate location 
And now they're going to have to put in that location and it may not qualify for telehealth. So they allow it for the patient, but it hasn't said they're going to allow it for the physician anymore because the public health emergency is gone. So under the current public health emergency, which is good through May 11th, it would be a telehealth visit. Now let's just say the pay, the physicians in the office, but the patients in the parking lot because they need to uh, get good internet to talk to the physician because um, they're having a problem with something, but they feel like they're contagious with whatever they have. What is that? Well, it's a gray area, I have to tell you. But because the physician's in the office, if the physician goes out to the car or the physician is seeing the patient through a telehealth mean, any kind of video type thing, then in my opinion, that is still telehealth. There's an exception to this rule in the hospital setting. On the FAQ sheet for the COVID-19 CMS list, they said if the patient's in the hallway of the hospital and the physician's in is in the hospital and they haven't seen each other face to face, but the patient is physically in the hospital, then they allowed them to bill a regular visit instead of telehealth. It doesn't work that way in the office in the parking lot. And then here's another one. While doing telehealth, a lot of times the patient, and this is number nine, is not present, just the guardian or parent. Can this still be billed? No. Remember when the updated rules came out in 2021 for ENM, it did not include parent or guardian. And I'll even, you know, quote you from one of the ENM codes. Let me find one here right off the bat. And this would be, let's say, an established visit. It says, let's look at a 214, officer or outpatient visit for the evaluation and management of an established patient, which requires a medically appropriate history and or examination and moderate level of medical decision making. They used to say with or with or, you know, with the uh, parent or surrogate that, you know, there used to be inclusions there for um, caregivers and it's no longer there. So if the patient isn't there, that's really nice of you to provide that free visit. So that's not okay, even in a pediatric practice. If there is a visit that, well, I should say it's not a billable service. If it's something that you've agreed with with your provider that it's going to be a cash pay conversation consultation, then that's up to you. And it's just not a billable insurance service. And then number 10 for depression screening, CPT code 96127. Make sure you look that up and, and decide if that's something you want to capture because it's a missed revenue opportunity. If you are a primary care office, if you're internal medicine office, um, you know, cardiology practice, any practice that you're following the patient for the course of their, basically their, their care, um, and they're not also being treated by primary care as well if you're using this as a specialist. But in order to bill the 96127, the physician or the nurse practitioner or PA must ask the nine questions on what we call the PHQ-9 scoring tool. It's easy to find. They actually just Google it and you can pull it up and document their findings. It's for an asymptomatic patient, but one that the physician suspects that there could be possible some uh, some depression issues there. So they're screening them because they were just thinking, you know, maybe the patient's circumstance could push them to think, you know what, I just want to find out. Again, it's asymptomatic is something that was forthright, where it's not like, you know, it's not like the patient complained of, you know, um, sleeplessness and, um, you know, uh, anything that's going to have those depression causal notations. But it could just be the patient's circumstance that 
can put that in there. Maybe if there's a social determinant of health of homelessness, or there's something there that reflects maybe the patient couldn't get access to their medication, something like that, or just lost their job. Even though that is a social determinant of health, it's not a formal symptom. So it's still an asymptomatic patient, but circumstance could say that depression screening is appropriate. So check into that for sure. Okay, so those are my top 10 for uh, March. Hopefully you found those helpful. I think I was on all different wavelengths there when it comes to, comes to specialty. A couple of things just to update you. Don't forget on, uh, actually, you might have missed it. It's today. So on March 28th, which is, uh, I'm recording obviously not on today, but um, March 28th, I have my first quarter Medicare update with NSCHBC. So if, if you're on the East Coast and you're listening to this, make there's still time to register or sign up. And then also don't forget there I am part of a virtual conference with NAMAS. Uh, so N-A-M-A-S, so the National Association for Auditors. And it's N-A-M-A-S dot C-O. And you can get 10% discount for joining our two-day conference with the promotion code Terry10. T-E-R-R-Y 10. So hopefully we'll see you on that. There's a lot of good information. We've got 14 speakers. I'm actually doing a session on telehealth and at post-PHE information with um, Brianna Santoli, who is a, an attorney out of New Jersey and actually also my cousin, who I adore. And so we're going to be uh, talking about that. And we have fun with it. So it's actually a fun thing to do. Now, my personal tidbit this week, oh my goodness. Well, I'm sick of the rain. How about you guys? I'm in Southern California and I've been wearing long sleeves uh, for three months. Who does that out here? We're usually out tanning in in Southern California at the end of February. Um, We had one sunny day. We got up to 72 degrees last week. I decided to go out and sit outside for 40 minutes. Unfortunately, I kind of nodded off a little bit because the sun was so warm and I got sunburned. Yes, I got sunburned. So there, that'll teach me to, to wait and put my sunscreen on in March, right? But it's raining today, so hopefully that'll clear up soon. And everyone, just have a great rest of your week. Make it a great day. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer, Joe Kuzma. Music producer, Assassin Music.